Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Hey, everybody. I hope you're having a great week, and thank you very much for inviting me into your home for more answers to more of your questions. I wanted to put a quick plug in to the podcast this week, the Sensibly Speaking podcast. We did a uh, show with uh, Cyprian Ivanov again. Uh, we had a great dialogue about the subject of bad critical thinking or critical thinking involved with conspiracy theorists. And we actually cite a study, go into some detail about some of that, and where it is that conspiracy theorists and similar type people are really losing the plot when it comes to being good critical thinkers. So I hope you guys will check that podcast out. We had a lot of fun doing that. Also, um, this last Friday, we did the Critical Conversation show. My wife and I sat right here and talked with some of you guys, and it went great. It was an awesome show. It also talked about bad critical thinking, and we had some really nice calls about that and also some Scientology-related stuff on the show. So I hope you guys will check that out. And uh, with that, let's go ahead and get on with your questions. Steve Wood. Scientologists use clay in training and in auditing to demonstrate problems by freshening the clay into whatever it is they're trying to convey. Could you tell me how, for example, you use clay to discuss jealousy or anger or some other complex emotional state using Play-Doh? Sounds really difficult, if not impossible, to me. All right, Steve, thank you very much for this question. And um, yeah, I've talked in the past about clay table processing, and this is where the clay, literally like Play-Doh, is utilized in, um, in auditing for Scientology, right? This is a Scientology thing. And there are two places right now that I know of where clay table processing or auditing is used. And that is, uh, interestingly, on two different courses. Excuse me. There is a professional TRs course, that has clay table processing on it, addressing issues with communication and uh, things related to communication, like time and intention and things like that. And then there is um, the Key to Life course, which has uh, one, two, three, three or four different clay table processes as part of its uh, action. So in fact, you, the very first thing you do on the Key to Life course is, is you do some clay table processing on the subject of problems. And in fact, that's where um, I think your question comes from, Steve. And so you're asking, how do you show anger or jealousy or stuff like that? Well, it's actually not as hard as you might imagine. With the clay, what you do and how it generally works in the world of Scientology around the world is you will make figures out of clay, a little man, a little woman, little kids even. And they're about five, six inches high, you know, clay figures. You just roll them out. You roll a little body. This is not artistry or artistic. You don't use multiple colors to differentiate the hair from the clothes or something. They don't even put clothes on people. You just roll out bodies, throw a head on it, you know, poke a little couple eye holes and a smiley face or frowny face or whatever. And that's, that's your clay man or clay woman. And, uh, I, you know, some people get a little artistic with it and put some hair on the woman or something, but that's mostly frivolous nonsense. You don't have to do that there. It's intended that the clay be rather crude looking. You know, it's again, art's not a problem with this or an issue at all. So what you do though, with clay table processing is you are actually putting in clay incidents or events that have happened to you in your past. Um, now you can do past life stuff that comes up in clay table, but 
mostly what's being looked for is this lifetime stuff. And what you're addressing in, um, in the problems thing, for example, is you might get a command like do a clay representation of, a, of, a, of intention counter intention. Okay, so a problem, you know, would be you intend to do something and somebody else intends you not to do that thing or is countering your intention. You want to play on the slide, they want to play on the slide and they don't want you playing on it. So you got an intention, you know, being countered there. Um, that could, of course, result in jealousy, anger or whatever, as you describe here. So let's let's talk about how that might work. So here's a person making a Right. And this is this is a clay representation. That's the term that's used in Scientology for when you're using clay in auditing. It's different from when you're using clay in training, even though what you do with the clay is pretty much almost exactly the same. But with representations, you're doing actual things that have happened to you. So, um, so let's say you you need to do this uh, this problem thing, and you remember a time. When you were in high school, let's say, where you got, um, you wanted to uh, go out with a girl and um, and somebody else also wanted to go out with the girl. And so there was a problem between the two of you because of this intention counter intention. So how you might show that in clay is obviously you would show yourself, you'd make a little body of you, and you might make a body of the girl that you're interested in, and you put a little label on it. Each each thing that you make in clay has a label, so you have a little label that says me, and a label that says Janet, and a label that says Bill, because Bill was the other guy who wanted Janet's affections and was fighting you over them. And so you have the three figures, and now you might show you... And with, with, with the person who's you, you might put a little thought bubble. You can do that in clay. Is you can make a little line, you roll it out, nice big long line of clay, and you make a thought bubble. You make a little loop and you attach it to the guy's head and you put a label on it that says thought or idea. Uh, and inside that loop, you make another clay figure of you, put a little label on it that says you, and another little clay figure of, of Janet says Janet, but this time you're, you're together holding hands or your arms are around each other or you're giving, you know, maybe you're giving her a heart-shaped box and, and you put a little, uh, uh, little clay square down there and you write on it, uh, you know, maybe February, uh, whatever, Valentine's Day, February 14th, 13th, right? Um, and, you write, and you put a label on it that says calendar, so indicate time, and there you are thinking about being with Janet and, you know, uh, Valentine's Day. Anybody could look at that and go, ah, romantic aspirations for Janet, right? Or maybe you're giving her flowers or something, something that would indicate you have, you know, aspirations to be with her. And then you might do the same thing with Bill. You might put a thought bubble on him, and he is thinking about him giving Janet chocolates or, or flowers or hanging out with her or whatever. So now anybody can come along and look at these three clay figures and see what Bill is thinking about and see what you're thinking about and go, oh, you intend to go out with Janet, but there's Bill and Bill intends to go out with Janet. Intention, counter intention, right? And there's Janet maybe uh, with a frowny face or a little confused face going, hmm, you know, and you can show that in the clay. You can put her hands up there going, hmm, what to do about this, right? Maybe this is this is a problem for her as well as for you. 
Now, if you wanted to show anger or jealousy there, you could also show Bill giving you the, the evil eye, right? And the clay, he's looking at, you know, he's thinking about her, but he's looking at you and his arms are, you know, akimbo or crossed and, he's, and he maybe has a mad look on his face because he's looking at, at the figure of you and maybe you are looking over at him and maybe you have a concerned look on your face. You could do little eyebrows, you know, or a little frowny face, or maybe you're mad at him and, you know, you're directing anger in his direction. And that would pretty clearly show that you two aren't happy with each other. And there's Janet sitting there when I'm wondering what to do. And that would pretty much show uh, that kind of a problem with those emotions present. And it would take, you know, 15, 20 minutes to, to roll out a clay representation like that. And uh, the auditor, the person who's doing the auditing and sitting across the table from the person who's doing the clay work, will keep a worksheet, note down, or maybe draw a little picture of what you put in the clay. And then the supervisor comes over and checks it out. And if the supervisor gives it a pass, if he can see what's going on there, as you intended him to see uh, or her to see, then uh, it's all good. Then you're good. You're done with that command. You move on to the next one. If there's something the supervisor looks at it and goes, yeah, I'm really not getting what's going on here. There's something not clear. I'm not. I'm just not clear to me here. Can you clarify this? Can you make it more clear? And then the person might have to go back and work over what it is they don't see. Um, but that's just procedural. As far as how you show it, that's pretty much how you do it. And it pretty much works the same way in clay demonstrations when you're in a class and you're, and you're demonstrating something with clay. Except with demonstrations, you don't usually put yourself into the picture. It's not about you. It's about demonstrating some principle or concept or or idea. So that's kind of the big difference between the two. But otherwise, that's how it works. And I, I hope I clarified um, your question there, Steve. Oscar Q. Zilch. What is Comlag? From what little I know, it seems to me to be a clever piece of thought reform in which uncertainty and reflection are framed as aberrations, quote unquote, to be trained out of the Scientologist. Oscar, is a great question. Thank you for asking me this because I've never been asked about ComLag before, and it's kind of an important principle in, in communication in Scientology and in assessing or judging uh, where somebody's at in terms of their sanity. Hubbard says that this thing called ComLag or communication lag is a test or indicator of how sane or rational somebody is. And what it is is he says it's the exact amount of time between an auditor or a person in life asking somebody a question and it's and how long it takes that person to actually answer that question. So, you know, I ask you, you know, how are you doing? And you go on a long tear about how upset, you know, how about a problem at work or problem at home, or your car broke down, or, 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 and you're just going blah, 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 for like, you know, five or 10 minutes, because you think this person asked you, you know, well, how are you doing? Well, here's how I'm doing, blah, 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 blah. And finally, after, you know, listing out or, or, or laying out all your, your issues or problems or drama, you then say, but other than that, I'm fine, right? And a Scientologist might look at that and go, 
Okay. It took you five minutes from the time I answered, I asked you the question to finally tell me you're fine. That's calm lag. That's a five minute calm lag. And I will judge you and your rationality accordingly because L. Ron Hubbard tells me that the longer the calm lag, the less sane the person is. The more aberrated the person is, in other words, right? We're not talking about a binary of sanity, insanity. It's a, it's a spectrum. But, it's, but the idea is that if you cannot simply answer a question that's asked of you or reply to a communication that is given to you in a, you know, instant kind of uh, rapid-fire fashion, there's just basically something wrong with you. Your mind is going around in different places and bouncing off walls and, and uh, you know, bouncing down the stairs before it gets back up and decides to actually address the, the subject matter of what it was that was being, you know, asked of or, or given over. So Comlag is something Hubbard came up with in the, um, in the 1950s. It was used as a means of judging whether auditing was working or whether auditing was producing any change in a person. How long was their Comlag from one question to the next to the next? If it tightened up, if it got smaller and less in time as you were asked the same question over and over again, for example, do birds fly? Yeah, do birds fly? Uh, uh, sure. Okay, do birds fly? You know, three minutes later, uh, yes, they fly. I hate this. Okay, do birds fly? Right. This is a this is an example of a command or a process that might be run in Scientology. They don't use do birds fly, but they might ask the same question over and over again, at looking for or or listening for the actual answer to the question, and how long did you take to give it? This isn't, um, in modern Scientology, this isn't utilized very often. Um, the auditor's not sitting there with a stopwatch counting how long it takes you to answer questions these days. But back in the 1950s and 60s, this was kind of a, a more utilized tool. And it's still written about and talked about in Scientology. So um, as you asked in the question, Oscar, you said... Um, it seems to me to be a clever piece of thought reform in which uncertainty and reflection are framed as aberrations. I could not agree with you more in that description of what Comlag is. It's one of Hubbard's numerous tools used to introvert and uh, put somebody on unsure footing and make them feel wrong or bad for thinking about or considering questions or commands or whatever. So it was just this weird thing Hubbard entered in, and it is just another form of um, ways to mess with Scientologists is really what that comes under. So there you go. Adam Masters, why is it when I see Sea Org or staff recruitment posters, it's always an individual by name or phone number who is listed as the point of contact? Why don't they have a central careers portal like most government or corporate recruitment websites? Are they more interested in individual stats, or is there some type of commission structure for recruiters? Okay, Adam, good question. And actually what this highlights is the fact that there is really a lack of centralized uh, coordination or function in Scientology in regards to its recruitment because they... Each individual organization acts in a vacuum from all other organizations in terms of how they get staff. It's up to each individual um, corporate unit, I guess you could say, um, as to you know to get their own people. 
And statistics play into this because you can have organizations competing for the same person. Happens all the time. Um, less so with the city level, the class five orgs, right? The, the, the city level churches. But in the Sea Org, this is all kinds of a thing. I mean, Flag will be trying to recruit a guy. And over in PAC in Los Angeles, they're trying to recruit the same guy. So you can get cross-recruitment and stuff like that going on. It doesn't happen a lot, but it does happen. And then, you know, adjudications need to be made or people need to coordinate or figure things out because you can't have Flag and PAC recruiting the same guy because the recruiter is the person who gets the recruit for their org. And so it's very dog-eat-dog when it comes to the recruitment world of Scientology and especially the Sea Org. Um, they're, they're very, very um, – well, it's really not a whole lot different from any other high-competition, high-pressure sales-type organization. It's every man for himself. It's a shark tank kind of situation, and that's how it is with Sea Org recruitment. There have been a few times where there have been multi-organizational efforts to band together and, and work together to use the recruitment resources they have to get more for everybody. That was not a long-lived activity. That kind of thing didn't last very long or doesn't last very long because of the cutthroat competition between the orgs and the recruiters. Um, you know, who's supposed to get the stat for this recruit when a guy from ASHO and a, and, a, and a woman from AO both are recruiting the same guy for the Sea Org? Well, ultimately, they're all Sea Org members, but they're ASHO or AO staff also. And so they want that recruit for their org. And one body can only go to one place. You, you know, you can't split the guy up. So that's why the statistics and the, and the utilization of people is built for a competition kind of uh, model for recruitment. And that's how Hubbard set it up. That's how he wanted it. And it's never changed since then. Logamug. Why do you think independent Scientology groups have been so relatively unsuccessful? Have their attempts to remove some of the methods of undue influence and manipulation actually contributed to this lack of success? Hey, great question. Thanks for asking about this. Um, the first thing I'll say is, yes, they definitely are a pretty disorganized lot. They don't have the same kind of esprit de corps or teammanship or demands, really, or the ability even to create the kind of demands that Scientology normally does within its churches and especially in the Sea Org. So um, independents are independent, right? They're By nature, they have left the group. They tend to eschew large groups and things like that. They've got their own situations or issues with that. But that's but but I can't speak universally for all independent Scientologists on that by a long shot. I'm sure you'll find every variation of, of everything within that world that you'll find anywhere else. But as far as why they're not successful, lack of organization is one of the points. But the other point, and I think personally this is far more important, um, Scientology doesn't work, and it never has. It, 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 the only thing it does is give you a bit of a dopamine high when you have uh, certain auditing techniques used or certain you know realizations that you have after reading some of Hubbard's works. And um, you know, and those are those are a little few and far between, actually, but 
The point is that it doesn't do what it claims it does. There is no such thing as a clear. There are no OTs. There's nobody rehabilitating spiritual abilities or spiritual perceptions or immortality or telekinesis or telepathy or any of that stuff. Remote viewing, all that crap, right? None of that's real. And Scientology cannot produce those things. So that's why it's not successful, because it doesn't work. It's a con. And I, I'm only stressing it this way. I'm only talking about it this way, because not, not because I'm, you know, of anything you asked here. It's just I, I am so amazed to this day. I am just amazed that people can um, get themselves into a headspace where they think after leaving Scientology, after getting away from it, after looking online, finding out what a lying scumbag L. Ron Hubbard was, after finding out that it's all just a bunch of crap, after finding out how many you know people have left, how much abuse has happened in that group, the, the torment and torture that occurs there, the human rights violations that go on on a daily basis there, and they still tell themselves... L. Ron Hubbard knew what he was talking about. He was really on to something. Even if he was a ruthless bastard, boy, did he discover some great stuff. No, he didn't. He didn't. He didn't discover anything original, useful, or important. Anyway, sorry, I just get in a little bit of a tear when an independent Scientology comes up because it's just such a waste of everybody's time and money. And everything else, you know, and it just frustrates me that people waste themselves that way. But anyway, um, as far as why it hasn't taken off, as far as I'm concerned, that's why. You know, if it worked, if it was the better mousetrap, if it was the way out of this, you know, physical world of of nonsense and, and harshness, you know, I'd be the first person singing its praises and demanding to go clear an OT, I mean, believe me, I would. I would love nothing more than to experience the wonderful miracles that Scientology promises. But it's all just a bunch of crap. And after 25 years of working for that group, I definitely know that that is the truth. There is nothing to it. If, if anything, it's just destructive to your mental health, your well-being, and your emotional state. So anyway, like I said, you didn't ask for me to go on a rant about that, but That is the reason why I think independent Scientology is small and will stay small forever. Uh, It's a bunch of deluded people running around thinking that they are doing things that they are absolutely positively not doing. You know, there are no body thetans. There's nobody telepathically releasing body thetans. There's no OT powers. It's just none of that. So, you know, what a fantastic waste of everybody's time. But... People do what they're going to do. So what are you going to, what are you going to do? <laughs> Samuel, I grew up a second generation Scientologist in Europe. And I remember hearing that there were processes to make people who wear spectacles see perfectly well again. My mother told me there was even a barrel in a Scientology org in the U.S. that had hundreds of spectacles in it to show how many Scientologists were cured from that procedure. Do you know any more about that and if that is still being said in recent years? Okay, Samuel, thank you for this question. You're talking about a very specific thing that Hubbard talked about in Phoenix, Arizona. 
1953-1954 time period, he was giving um, advanced clinical courses one after another after another for about two straight years, delivering um, really intensive auditing training to small groups of people. I think it was you know 15, 20 people at a shot at most. It could have even been less uh, for some of those classes. And these were weeks-long training intensives, and then they would go on to the next one and the next one. While he was doing this, he was setting up an organization in Phoenix, one of the first, if not the first, actual churches of Scientology. And, um, and he tried to promote that Scientology would, be, uh, would, would physically cure people of things. And so they, they supposedly had a barrel where people were putting their discarded glasses after their auditing. Um, this was referred to in a lecture, if I remember right, uh, where Hubbard talked about this. I think it was only really that one place. But I can tell you that that was just another one of Hubbard's tall tales because um, it, it, does, it, it, it sort of surrenders to critical thinking and common sense that if any organization anywhere in any city was successfully curing people of bad eyesight, glaucoma, you know, cataracts, eye troubles of whatever kind. If you had people walking into a place, getting cured of eye problems, optical issues of every kind, so much so that they could throw their glasses away and never have to look back and use them again. And this was happening over and over and over again. Do you really think this would be kept a secret? <laughs> I mean, this would be headline news. There would be people flocking to that place by the hundreds if that was the case. It was just another one of Hubbard's lies. Now, if I'm wrong about that and somebody has personal information about from the 1950s about L. Ron Hubbard curing eyesight, I want to know about it. But that's my take on that. It was just another one of Hubbard's tall tales about the early days of Scientology and how successful they were. And it was just so much bullshit. Um, because it doesn't make any sense that you would have something like that. And then nobody, and it's the best kept secret ever, right? I mean, I know most Scientologists, I mean, many, many, many Scientologists I knew over the years had eye problems, wore glasses, wore contacts, me, my dad, my mom, Every single Scientologist I, I knew practically had glasses on or had contacts or had some kind of eye issue. If Scientology auditing actually could address that and fix that, would any Scientologist be walking around with glasses or contacts? Of course they wouldn't. I would have paid good money and done whatever, jumped through whatever hoops you wanted me to jump through to get that kind of auditing. Never happened. I was never cured of anything in Scientology as far as that goes. Um, certainly not my bad eyes. So um, anyway, so that's why I say it's just so much bunk. Uh, it's just nonsense. But that was the story. And you are you did ask about it uh, exactly the way Hubbard described it, Samuel. So uh, that's what I can tell you about that. I, I you know, I don't know. Uh, if, like I said, if anybody's got any counter uh, information on this, be, please reach out to me and let me know. I'd be very curious. All right, let's do some flash answers. Jonathan Perry, what do Scientologists make of deja vu? It's a glitch in the matrix. 
just kidding. Uh, Scientologists think about deja vu as a, a point of spiritual awareness. You know, oh, you you probably did live something like this before, or you know, maybe it was in a past life or something, or 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 right. I mean, deja vu is just another OT phenomena as far as Scientologists are concerned. Karen Horvath, when were the RPF and the whole established? The RPF was established by L. Ron Hubbard and his crew in the early 1970s. I think it was 72 or 73 time period. It was certainly in, in force by 1974. Um, the whole completely different thing was established by David Miscavige in 2003, four time period, somewhere in there. Uh, at the int base, and that was something that was Miscavige's brainchild to punish all of international management and anybody else who was on his shit list. They got locked up in the hole and were made to do group confessions and and uh, physically abusive nonsense and stay up all night and that kind of crap. So that was the hole as laid out in Going Clear and uh, also talked about in Scientology in the Aftermath. Adria Vici Haloub. Have you seen Bo Burnham's Netflix comedy special, Inside? If so, what are your thoughts to it? If not, I think you'd like it. Hey, thanks, Adria. Yeah, we did watch it, and we did enjoy it. Not as much as I've enjoyed Bo Burnham's earlier specials. I didn't think this was quite as inspired as his earlier work. I didn't like the music as much. It felt a bit repetitive. It didn't really feel as, as mm, how do I put it? Um... I wasn't as impacted by it emotionally, uh, by his performance, as I was his earlier shows. So, um, so that's what I can say about it. It was worth watching. I certainly, I certainly will recommend people check it out, if you, especially if you like Bo Burnham, uh, which we do. I mean, we really like the guy. But, um, but yeah, wasn't wasn't as impressed with this one as as his earlier stuff. Okay, guys, that was our quick and dirty show for this week. I hope you enjoyed these answers and they were somewhat entertaining, informative, and educational. Uh, again, thank you very much for inviting me into your home and uh, having me be a part of your life this week. And I look forward to seeing you next week. Bye-bye.